Hey, you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble falling asleep, trouble getting to sleep? Well, welcome. I believe you're in the right place. I hope you're in the right place. This is Sleep With Me, and we're proud to present Game of Thrones, the Game of Thrones podcast that puts you to sleep. We do it with a bedtime story. All you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights, and press play. We're going to do the rest. What do you mean, the rest, safe place? What are you talking about? Well, what we're going to do is distract you. I'm going to talk about Game of Thrones, Season 2, Episode... Six, I had to check that. The Old Gods and the New. And I'm going to talk about that episode. And I'm going to talk about it some more. And I'm going to make some points. The points may or may not be valid or interesting. Well, no, they may, will not be valid or interesting. They'll be distracting enough. So you can set aside whatever's running through your brain, saying, hey, buddy, what are we going to do tomorrow? Holy moly, what about that thing? Oh, my God, you forgot about this? What about Nana's present? All that stuff. You know, we can, we, you can't deal with it now. you got to get some rest. So I'm going to distract you from that. you just got to listen to me talk. And hopefully you'll fall deep, deep asleep or medium, you know, medium asleep in case you're, if you're a superhero you know, sleep alert, but rested. I want you to get rested so you're better off facing the day tomorrow. That's what we do here. We're a podcast. On Sundays, we talk about Game of Thrones. Tuesdays and Thursdays, I just tell stories. But we're a podcast to put you to sleep. I hope we do that. I give it a couple tries. If it doesn't work, I'm sorry. We're on the internet, www.sleepwithmepodcast.com. You can email me your opinion, your thoughts, whatever you want to share. Feedback at Sleep With Me Podcast. Uh, what else? At uh, Dear Scooter on Twitter. We're on Facebook. You can comment on the website. I'd love to hear from you. But most of all, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for listening, and I hope I help you fall asleep. Hey, guys. It's me, Gratitude Nin, on um, the back of a pack of wild horses. Uh, a herd of gratuitous horses. I mean, like, horses of gratitude, not like I'm just showing the horses. You know, if I was if, if, uh, if I was, if I was praying to a horse lord, I'd definitely have gratuitous horses. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm just sitting on a horse here talking to you and, you know, patting horses and feeding horses. But no, 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 these are horses of gratitude. Horses of thankfulness, gods, and I'm riding them to you with a pack of people I'm so thankful for. Chris Posty Posterson, our music man, Scotty Bobati, and Jenny Bobenny, uh, our icon, art, art folks. My brother Ken also does a piece of art for the Game of Drones only feed. I sometimes forget him. Sorry, I'm sweet, sweet brother of mine, <laughs> sweet child of mine. Where do you go to? Uh, you're not my child, though I, you know, I have treated you like... Anyway, guys, this is the gratitude, not the apology. Horses. Oh, I lost um, Lord and the Lady, the podcast, Lord and the Lady, and us to the the highest of peaks and the lowest of valleys. Defrenestrator, making sure they don't push us into those valleys or off of those peaks. The silver tone, singing all the while. Everyone else that's involved in helping around town, 
uh, glittering researcher, divine Miss Sam, the Baroness, the general. I know there's more gods, but I also need to thank uh, latest iTunes reviews. I don't know if you have, uh, uh, probably not, except for the computer I left Barky, my old netbook. Uh, hopefully Barky kept that dry and used it. Uh, uh, probably not, though, but if you could, I Barky, write me an iTunes review. But I want to thank um, two new iTunes reviews who are both hard to pronounce. Miss a baby. Miss a baby. I think that's it. Miss a baby. Miss a baby. Did you miss him a baby? A miss, or it could be, it's MS though, like miss and then capital A. Miss a baby. Uh, she says she thinks the stories are great sleepy time stories, but she's asleep. And that's a good thing. So thank you, Miss a baby. There's a little silver. I'm like the um, rust tone. To, to Chris W. Silvertone. I miss a baby. I'm the rustoleum of the podcast. And then uh, Acero, S-A-C-E-R-O-L-A, Chloe. Acerola, like she's like the Ricola of Chloe's gods. Acerola, Chloe. She says uh, the podcast is the best. It makes her laugh and then... The laughter knocks, you know, bro, she she falls asleep. So thank you to them. So and thank you, gods, for guiding their uh, minds and their hearts towards us. Sorry, there's some noise, but there's, you know, you haven't, Maiden hasn't built me a castle for us to live in yet. And that's a big yet, y, capital Y-E-T. Um, no punctuation yet. Uh, you know, wanted to say exclamation point, question, exclamation point, or question, exclamation point, question mark, but I'm more like, or dot, 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 but no, no, no punctuation on that. I want to thank Anne, C, and Ethan, who listen together uh, with two iPods and two sets of headphones, I believe, and two different stories swimming in their sweet little brains. As they're carried off into a place where, uh, you know, uh, wild horses run with gratitude, but without gratuitous nudity, because horses are almost mostly nude to begin with. I want to thank Matthew S., who in some other forum, I think, said skull to me. So skull to you, Matthew, and in the, in the, you know, in the old high Dothraki. That means I spit at you in the best way possible as a sign of respect, as, uh, as you know, as since I can spit and you can spit, and so shall we spit. Uh, Juan Tread, God, I know you know, you know, Tread the Treadster, he's from the Rock City out there. Um, you know, the snow belt's down on Juan, but he's not down on the snow belt because he's, Whipped up a little Christmas melody that I listened to, and I think there's a Jawa in the in the in it, gods. So in singing, it's Wantred and a Jawa, and a couple other creatures uh, straight out of Star Wars and Guardians of the Galaxy. Barky, Guardians of the Galaxy Blu-ray. Um, so I'll be sharing that, gods.
But if you've ever wanted to hear uh, Jow was saying, God, now's your chance. Stella and Stephanie, two old friends of the podcast, got in touch with me this week. I just want to say hi to them. And that's it, gods. I'm taking these horses, and the horses left me behind, so I'm walking to catch up with gratitude, you know, because gratitude doesn't stop gratituding, and neither do I. My heart overflows with, you know, the indirect. It's like you guys don't do any effort, just all my listeners do the effort and the kindness, and you guys just sit up there and take the credit for your wisdom and greatness. Uh, uh, so I would I was some sort of passive broadcast, I guess. I'll just buy that. Thank you, gods, and thank you, horses and listeners, and especially the horses for not trampling me. Uh, thank you. All right, so we're talking about Season 2, Episode 6, The Old Gods, and the new. It starts out with a maester on the run. Maesters are, you know... Traditionally, they don't run very fast. And then we, we have Theon. He, oh, the maesters lets the ravens, ra- ravens go. And then a bunch of dudes bust in. And uh, then we have Theon waking up. Hey, Branny Poo, Bran, time to get up. Oh, oh, what is it, Uncle Theon? Oh, I've taken your castle. It's Prince Theon, by the way. I'm not your uncle anymore. I'm your prince. And, you know, I'm going to take, take over all this stuff. And what do you mean you're going to do? You're on our side. He's like, no, I'm a Greyjoy. I can't fight for Rob and my brother both. And Bran's like, I'll never yield. And Theon's like, the castle already belongs to me. The people are yours. Why don't you yield on their behalf, Bran? Come on, be a good little lord. And then uh, there's this great little exchange where he says, Theon, did you hate us the whole time? And the look on Theon's face and Bran's face is just priceless, beautiful. And Theon says something, she says, I think he says, uh, my father wears the ancient crown of Sultan Rock. And he tells him, you know, I'm here to take over. And Roderick comes in, says, ah, Theon, great joy, he spits in his face. They're like, this guy's got to go. You know, Roderick, you got to pay the iron price. And then the maester, I think Maester Lewin, he tries to intervene. He says, oh, come on, let's, let's cooler heads prevail. But he doesn't, I mean, this guy must have met, Lewin must have never met Balon Greyjoy. Because, uh, I mean, Theon is a cooler head compared to Balon. But, you know, Theon's like, sorry, dude, like, i got to earn the respect of my men. And then it's a beautiful, beautiful rain, um, a beautiful scene, tra- tragic scene. But a beautiful scene where the rain's coming down, and then Theon has to take care of Roderick, and Roderick says, uh, Theon Greyjoy. Or something. He says, Theon Greyjoy, the gods help you. Now you are truly lost. It only, I mean, it was great. And then Theon can't even, he even botches that, that situation there. Already, like, he did a triple botch because he wasn't even listening to his father in the first place. Then we have Osha, I think, goes to seduce. Is this, I don't, I don't know what this is from, this quote, actually, but she said, uh, there's a quote here. I think it's about Osha and Theon, but it might be, it says, you can't tame a wild thing. You can't trust a wild thing. And that's Horn Halfhand. He might say that. And uh, he, he's talking, he's talking philosophy to John and meaning of, 
battle, meaning of the North, all that stuff. And then John takes it so seriously. He's like, it's just words, John. It's stuff to keep us warmer in the night. Then we have Arya and uh, Tywin, and Tywin's all mad at one of his sidekicks. He's like, can you even read, man? And he's like, no. And then he talks to Arya about it, and he tells the story of uh, dealing with Jamie, who had a dyslexia, it sounds like. And Tywin, like a lot of brutal parents, says, I'll just force this dyslexia out of you. They tried that with me. It did not work. My parents did, and the uh, system did. They have teachers and uh, and uh, whatever. But um, Pat Corden at the time when he taught Jamie to read, that's another whatever, dude. I mean, it sounds like I remember, and this is, again, I'm not trying to take sides on any issues or offend anybody, but there's this book, Think and Grow Rich, that's popular. And I remember reading it, and then there's this horrible scene that's similar to that where the guy's trying to teach his kid how to do something. And he's like, well, I just force, you know, you can learn anything. A kid can learn anything despite whatever challenges they have if you force them to. Again, I'm probably paraphrasing it and probably wrong, but that's my takeaway from it. And I was like, oh, God, I can't read this book. It's giving me a panic attack. But that doesn't have anything to do with Game of Thrones. Then Baelish comes in. And Baelish, you know, he's like, hey, buddy, I'm here to work a deal. And Tywin's like, oh, boy. And like, oh, well, you know, demons, these demons messed up. Uh, um, he's like, oh, these demons came in and messed up Renly's plans. And Tywin's like, oh, yeah, men love to blame demons when their grand plans fail. And then they start talking Tyrells. Baelish spills wine, looks up, he sees Arya. Does he know it's her or not? We don't know. And we're back at uh, John and with John and Horn half hand, and they take this camp, and he captures this woman, and it ends up it's this beautiful, beautiful redheaded woman, another redhead for our. Uh, if you're keeping count, I have no idea how many redheads we're at, but by a lot. And somehow he catches her name, and then she's like, well, you know, and she's like, I gave you my name. What's your name? He's like, John Snow. And then they're like, oh, take her out. John's like, okay, I'll take her out. Just give me some privacy, which was strange. And then she's ready to go. I mean, she's ready. He's like, all right, I'm going to take you out. She's like, you never killed a woman before. He's like, no. And she's like, well, you know, just do it quick. And she's ready to go, it seems like. She steals herself, but then Jon Snow can't go, spoiler alert, can't go through with it. And she's like, okay, I'm out of here. Then she runs. He chases her. And I, I guess I, I don't know if this is a little commentary, but there's something about this scene that stayed with me when I watched it the first and maybe second time. This may have been the third time I've seen it. About the mountains and the like, how small distances can be and how great they can be. Because he chases her for maybe five minutes, but then they're utterly lost and isolated from his party in the wilderness. And that's always like something when you're in the wilderness that's humbling. Is like, oh, yeah, like I might only be like a two hours from civilization, but I'm really in the middle of nowhere. And John might only be, uh, you know, a mile or less from his partners, but he's, I mean, he's he's in a bit of trouble. And I just like how they did that. Then we have this scene where Micella going out to, you know, her arranged marriage, I guess, and she's crying and his priest is saying all these strange prayers. It's kind of comedic and sad at the same time. 
And then Circe brings the daggers out. She goes to Tyrion. She's like, one day, I pray you love someone. I pray you love her so much, you know, that like when you close your eyes, you see her face or something. And she's like, I want that for you before I take her from you or something. I'm like, whoa, man, this, whoa, this is serious. This is beyond a sibling rivalry type situation. Tommen's crying. And Joss, like, you cry like a cat meowing for its mother. And man. And then Sansa tries to, you know, he's like, princes don't cry. And Sansa's like, you did it. You cried. And then he almost attacks Sansa. Then they go out in the streets and people are booing and jeering Joff and uh, throwing stuff at him. And he goes crazy, says, kill, kill them all. Which reminded me of another scene, but I'm not sure what it was from. I think it was from Star Wars, but I'm not sure where someone says that. And then the priest from the comedic type priest. You reminded me of the guy in Beetlejuice uh, that was um, not Alec Baldwin uh, who was came to visit. I don't know. That might not be enough information for anyone. He didn't live there. He came to visit one night. He was kind of, uh, he just reminded me of that guy. I don't know if that helps you. Then they get back to safety, but Sansa's left behind, and Tyrion wants to go out to save Sansa. And then Joff's like, he's like, what about Sansa? And Joff's just like, traitors, I'll have all their heads. And uh, Tyrion has another good line. He says, we've had vicious kings and we've had 88 kings. But I don't know if we've ever had a vicious idiot king before. And then he's like, you're talking to a king now. And then he slaps me. He says, I just slapped a king, yo. And he says, what about Sansa? He says, let them have her. And then Hound saves her. He says, come here, little bird. I got you, little bird. And he brings him back. And Tyrion's like, thank you. And he's like, I didn't save her for you. Then we got Khaleesi waiting for the Spice King, and he's late, and then he shows up. He's pretty—he has some unbelievable—do yourself a favor and watch that scene. He has so much good dialogue, but he says, uh, look, what a beauty you are. Now that the red waste has been washed off you. And then he says—he says, she has a tra- uh, talent for drama, this one. And he's kind of playing with Khaleesi and talking about why he wouldn't invest in her. And she goes, do you understand? I'm no ordinary woman. And he says, okay, calm down, little princess. She says, I'm not your little princess. And she basically, he, he, he kind of disregards her. And she's like, dude, you don't know, I have any idea what you're doing. And then we have Arya. She almost gets caught reading some of Tywin's uh Plans or note, notes. Oh, this is when he talks about Jamie. I'm sorry, but he talks about Jamie's dyslexia. And then he says, did you know your father? And she's like, I did. I grew up with him. He taught me to read. Oh, no. Then Arius asks Tywin, did you know your father? He says, I did. I grew up with him. I watched him grow old. He was a good man, but a weak man. And he says, I'm cold. Like, and he means that, like, physically cold. But, I mean, come on. Uh, he seemed, like, disgusted by the hum- humanity of his father. 
And then Arya sneaks out the note, gets caught by the other guy uh, that can't read, but he goes like, uh-oh. And then she races to get her guy. And she says, you know, you got to take this guy out right and right now. And he says, a man cannot make things happen before it's time. And then we got Rob in his camp. Then we have Rob in his camp pressing the flesh. And he sees Lady Talissa. She's there, like, writing or something. And then Kat shows up, and she kind of uh, ruins his game because he's kind of, you know, flirt. They're flirting up a storm. And Kat is really... uh, I don't want to say emasculating, but she's, uh, she says, oh, who's this? She says, this is Lady Talissa. She says, Lady Talissa. Like, uh, I don't recognize that name. And then she gives her another look. Says, like, Philantis or something. And then he says, oh, your mama. You know, she, she says, right. Talissa's like, I got to get out of here. I'm tired of being uh, passively, aggressively abused. And then Rob's like, sorry, mom, I missed you. And she says, oh, you look positively forlorn. Again, I like like Michelle Ferry, Ferry or Fairly, the uh, actress that plays Cat. But I don't know. Cat's kind of a, a bit of a, a bit of a, a downer. I mean, maybe she's another truth teller, so she has the unfortunate role. Cause she's like Rob, you can't, you know, you, you're not gonna you you have duty before love. Then we're back with John and Agreet, the redhead, and they're gonna use some body heat to stay warm. And that's a little slapstick because she keeps moving her butt against his groin. And he's like, oh, oh, and she's laughing. Um, then we have Roose Bolton show up. He talks to Cat and Rob. He says, bad news. The Greyjoys are treasonous horse. And he says, uh, they say it took, you know, Winterfell. But I'll send my son, my bastard son, uh, I forget his name. Um, even though... But he says, I'll have him, you know, go back and take take uh, Winterfell back. Then we have Theon alone with Osha. And she says, I'd like to serve you. He says, I don't need your service. She says, oh, there's other ways to serve, my lord. And she kind of seems like seduces him or offers herself to him. And then we have Sansa alone with Shay. And Sansa's traumatized by being attacked by the public and the hate in their eyes for her. And Shay's like, you know, your horse eats better than their children. Uh, so that's why they're so angry. And it says, maybe it's just better if you don't trust anyone, life is easier that way or safer that way. And then we have Theon in bed with Osho. Osho gives him the 86 and sneaks out. And then she kind of takes out a guard, and then she sneaks Bran and Rickon and Hodor out uh, of the of the of Winterfell. And then we have uh, back with our Khaleesi, the Khaleesi. She talks about how she got you know the Spice Kings giving her a hard time, the Silk Kings giving her a hard time, the Copper Kings messing with her. And this guy's like, well, today I'm the richest man in Carth. And then we open the doors and then uh, all the guards are, are have been taken out and the dragons are gone. And then the end scene is this mysterious person taking the dragons up to this tower. And that's the end of the episode. And it's just the towers, uh, a little aside, are, always remind me of like... Uh, you know, like Dungeons and Dragon books. I think I read, I think I talked about 
Dragonlance books I read a long time ago, many, many lifetimes ago. But there was like three orders of wizards in those books, and they all had their own big tower. So I guess wizards like towers, which, yeah, I mean, who wouldn't? Uh, they're up high, good view. Uh, you know, no one, it would be exhausting for someone to come sneak up on you. So they'd probably be breathing heavy. And uh, that's it. But that was the last scene of a wonderful episode in the wonderful season two, The Old Gods and the New. All right. Thanks. So body heat came up in this episode and it made me think of uh, uh, body. I was like, does is this really going to work? Jon Snow and a greet uh, sharing body heat. There's also a movie body heat that I just remember the title. So I decided to look up some body. Heat. First thing I looked up was uh, body heat in Wikipedia and it comes up as thermo thermo therm thermoregulation. Uh, body thermoregulation is the ability of an organism to keep its body temperature within certain boundaries, even when the surrounding temperature is very different. A thermoconforming organism, by contrast, simply adopts the surrounding temperature to its own, as its own body temperature, thus avoiding the need for internal, internal thermoregulation. Interesting. The internal thermal regulation process is one aspect of homeostasis, a state of dynamic stability in an organism's internal conditions, maintained far from the equilibrium within its, with its environment. The study of such processes in zoology has been called ecophysiology or physio, physio, physiological ecology. If the body is unable to maintain a normal temperature, it increases significantly. Or and it increases the if the body is unable to maintain a normal temperature and it increases significantly above normal, a condition known as hyperthermia occurs. For humans, this occurs when the body is above 131 degrees Fahrenheit or 55 degrees Celsius, and any prolonged exposure at this temperature up into around 75 degrees Fahrenheit, 167 degrees. The 75 degrees Celsius, 167 Fahrenheit is bad. Humans can also have hyperthermia when the wet bulb temperature is sustained above 35 degrees Celsius, 95 degrees Fahrenheit for six hours. The opposite condition when the body temperature decreases below normal levels is known as hypothermia. Whereas an organism that thermoregulates is one that keeps its core body temperature within certain limits, a thermoconformer is subject. We just did that. It was not until the introduction of thermometers that any exact data on the temperature of animals could be obtained. It was then found that local differences were present since heat production and heat loss vary considerably in different parts of the body, although circulation of blood tends to bring about a mean temperature of the internal parts. Hence, it is important to identify the parts of the body that most closely reflect the temperature of the internal organs. Also, for such results to be comparable, the measurements must be conducted under comparable conditions. The rectum has traditionally been considered to reflect most accurately the temperature of the internal parts or, in some cases, of the sex or species of vagina, uterus, or bladder. Occasionally, the temperature of urine as it leaves the urethra may be of use in measuring body temperature. More often, temperature is taken in the mouth, axilla, 
ear or groin. I don't even know what an axle is. Uh, such animals undergo, some animals undergo various forms of dormancy where a, ther where a thermal regulation process temporarily allows the body temperature to drop, thereby conserving energy. Examples include hibernating bears and to torpor in bats. Thermo Here's endothermy versus ectothermy. Thermal regulation in organisms runs along a spectrum from endothermy to ectothermy. Ectoplasm, is that in here? Endotherms create most of their heat via meta metabolic processes and are colloquially referred to as warm-blooded. Ectotherms use external sources of temperature to regulate their body temperatures. They are colloquially referred to as cold-blooded, despite the fact that the body temperatures often stay within the same temperature ranges as warm-blooded animals. So that's a little bit about thermoregulation. There'll be in show notes. And I found this nice... Uh, they found this uh, nice little article over at wildernessmedicinenewsletter.wordpress.com. And this is from uh, 2006, October 26. Introduction to Frozen Myth Mythbusters and Myth Number One. And this is Frozen Mythbusters, Myth Number One of 13. There's a variety of myths regarding human response to cold exposure. These myths are explained and debunked by Dr. Murray Hamlet, DMV, Dr. Gordon Geisbrecht, Ph.D., and Frank Hubble, D.O. After posting the 13 myths, a complete article from the Wilderness Medicine Newsletter will be loaded for anyone interested in the chilly little details. The following is quoted by me, and the following is reprinted, from Volume 15, Number 6 of the journal Wilderness Medicine Newsletter from November-December 2004. Recently, I, Frank, had the delightful opportunity to spend no several days with Gordon and Murray as we taught together at the Northern New Hampshire EMS Conference and the Harry McDade Hypothermia Conference. As usual, we took great joy in the opportunity to discuss current research current classroom information, and a variety of rescues involving hypothermia and other cold-related injuries. There are still many old wives' tales and misinformation that are being taught, passed on, and utilized in patient care. There appears to be some bad data in education which is causing rescuers to provide inappropriate patient care that can be deleterious to their patients. So we decided to take a look at the many myths and misinformation that seem to surround cold physiology and cold-related injuries. Frozen myths to be busted. Okay, there's a bunch of them. Okay, well, let's just listen. Uh, myth number one, if you fall through the ice, you will pass away from hypothermia within five or ten minutes. If you live in Alaska around any large body of open cold water, then you probably heard this statement dozens of times. Is usually spoken with curled eyebrow and a facial expression to reinforce the fact that anyone with half a brain knows this. Well, guess what? It's a bold-faced lie. The reality is that you can't die of hypothermia in 30-degree Fahrenheit water or zero Celsius water in 5 to 10 minutes. However, there are several possible scenarios that can lead to a rapid demise if you fall through the ice into the waters off of Kodiak, Alaska. Uh, a, the individual has just broken through the ice and now gasping for air and sucks in air. 
They survive gasping for air, but over the next 10 minutes, they be, their muscles become cold and ineffective, and they are no longer able to tread water, and they don't have a um, personal flotation device. C, they manage to hang on to the ice or stay afloat. Over the next hour or so, they shiver and cool off. Eventually, they lose consciousness, at which point their arms, beard, D, D, they did not panic. They were able to hang on, keep their head above water, even after they lost consciousness. And then, only then, if not rescued in the next hour or two, they eventually develop hypothermia. Professor Popsicle, a.k.a. Gordon Geisbrecht, summarizes the Through the Ice experience, which, by the way, he has personally undergone many times, including on The Late Show with David Letterman, with the expression, one minute, ten minutes, one hour, two hours, to remind us what happens to humans when they are plunged into very cold water. This, one minute, ten minutes, one hour, two hour, one minute to control your breathing. The initial reaction is a gasp reflex where, for about one minute, the individual will gasp for air in reaction to the cold water. As the cold reaches the skin, the peripheral vasculature vasco-constricts, forcing the blood and the skin back to the body core, where it creates an insulating barrier against the cold. The trick is not to panic and start thrashing about. Just slowly tread water or grasp the edge of the boat or ice to keep your head above water. After approximately one minute, the gasping will calm down. The gasping will calm down, the skin will become numb, and the sensation of intense cold will decrease. Ten. Ten minutes of meaningful movement. Now you have about ten minutes to get out of the water. Gordon has worked out a simple method to help you get up and onto the ice. Keep your hands and arms on the ice and kick your feet. This will bring your body to a horizontal position parallel to the ice surface. Kick and pull. Once horizontal, kick with your feet while pulling with your hands. You will be able to propel yourself up onto the ice. I would suggest that at this point you do not try to stand up as the ice may not support your weight. Instead, try to keep your weight spread out as you roll, crawl, and slide across the ice until you know it will support your weight. One hour. One hour before you become unconscious. If you are unable to get out of the water after 10 minutes or so, the muscles in your arms and legs will be progressively bleh. the muscles in your arms and legs will become progressively useless due to heat loss in the extremities. Consequently, you will not have the strength to get out of the water. Unless there is someone else to help, you're stuck. All is not lost, however. You will feel pretty numb and you will shiver. That is our normal physiological response to the cold. An effort to produce more heat than we are losing. You will remain conscious for about one hour. How long you remain conscious depends on the clothing you are wearing, energy stores, and body build. Eventually, you lose consciousness as your body core temperature decreases to about 86 degrees Fahrenheit, 30 degrees Celsius. Unless you blow, drift below, slip below the surface, you are still a long way from big problems. Two hours to be found. If you lose consciousness but do not slip below the water, you can still be successfully rescued if you are found within two hours or so. So forget that old myth that you have ten minutes. And that's from the uh, wilderness. Um, wilderness Medicine Newsletter. There's also a movie called Body Heat, which is, uh, according to Wikipedia, a 1981 American neo-noir film written and directed by Lauren Castan, who uh, did Indiana Jones, wrote Indiana Jones. So it stars William Hurt, 
uh, brilliant actor, Kathleen Turner and Richard Crenna, features Ted Dance and J.A. Preston and Mickey Rourke. The film was inspired by Double Indemnity, Indemnity and Out of the Past. The film launched Turner's career. Empire Magazine cited the film in 1995 when it named her one of the hundred sexiest stars in film history. The New York Times wrote in the 2005 propelled by her jaw-dropping movie debut in Body Heat, she built a career on adventurousness and frank sexuality, born of robust physicality. Huh, this film was the directorial debut of Kazdan, screenwriter of Raiders Lost Ark and Empire Strikes Back. I'm sorry that missed Empire. Plot, we don't want to talk about the plot. Cast, we covered that. Uh, Kazdan wanted this film to have the intricate structure of a dream. Hmm. The density of a good novel and the texture of recognizable people in extraordinary circumstances. Critical reception. Body Heat was a commercial success. Produced on a budget of $9 million, it grossed $24,058 at the domestic box office. It was the 33rd highest grossing motion picture in 1981. Upon its release, Richard Corliss wrote, Body Heat has more narrative drive, character congestion, and sense of place than any original screenplay since Chinatown, yet leaves room for some splendid young actors to breathe, to collaborate in creating the film's texture. It's full of meaty characters and pungent performances. Ted Danson, J.A. Preston, Mickey Rourke. Variety Magazine wrote, Body Heat is engrossing mightily stylish Meller in which sex and crime walk hand in hand down the paths to tragedy, just like in the old days. Working in the imposing shadow of the late James M. Kane, screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan makes an impressively confident directorial debut. Lots more stuff. So that's a movie to check out. I'm, I'm going to have to watch that. So that's uh, another thing on Body Heat. When uh, Balon, uh, when Theon Greyjoy was taken over the castle, uh, Winterfell Castle from Bran, he said something outside that I, I wasn't 100% clear on. He said, uh, my father wears the crown of Sultan Rock, is what I thought he said. But I thought he said S-U-L-T-A-N, like Sultan Rock. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I never heard of that before. And then... How how poor is my memory? I said, uh, or I started doing research and I said, uh, salt and rock. Like, remember when he got baptized last episode and it was uh, born of salt and rock? And I said, oh, yeah. Uh, so he's the, he's the king. He wears the crown of salt and rock. And I looked up king of salt and rock. King, this is from uh, Game of Thrones Wicca, wikia.com. King of salt and rock. S-A-L-T and Rock is one of the self-styled titles held by the House Greyjoy, ruler of the Ironborn and lord of the Iron Isles. A little spoiler here. In the books, in the Song of Ice and Fire novels, the title is a reference to the ancient time in which each of the Iron Islands had a salt king and a rock king, from which a king... High King of the Isles was elected in a king's moot. 
don't know what that means. I'd have to look that up for you. But traditions were put to an end when Uran Greyiron descended on Nuga's Hill on Old Wicks and slew all the other kings, taking the crown for himself and making the kingship of Iron Isles hereditary. So uh, it used to be like almost a democracy or something, I guess. King's Moot is an ironborn custom. Okay, so I looked up. Let's see. So let's see what King's Moot means. I moved and went over to, this is still at uh, GameofThronesWiki.com. A little quote from Yara Greyjoy. We, train, we raised our kings from our own ranks and used beaten foes as thralls to work our mines and farm our land. The king's moot is an ironborn custom and part of the traditions which they call the old way. Though the king's moot, through the king's moot, the ironborn chose their kings from among their own numbers. Some of the kings of the Iron Isles were elected this way. After King Heron the Black and his sons were killed in the War of Conquest, Aegon the Conqueror had their ironborn select a new house to rule the Iron Islands under the overall rule of the Targaryens according to their customs. The ironborn chose Vicon Greyjoy as lord of the Iron Islands and House Greyjoy continued to rule over the ironborn by hereditary rights for the next three centuries. Vicon Greyjoy's election, however, was not called a king's moot. There had been no formal king's moot in thousands of years. So that was, uh, that's one aspect. And I said, okay, so yeah, where's the crown of salt and rock? And then there's a wonderful article over at a, uh, a wiki of ice and fire, awoiaf.westeros.org called crowns. And it's got some crowns. I'll have in the show notes as I do. It says uh, crowns are worn as a symbol of royal or elevated office. Especially kings, rulers in many cultures, such as King Beyond the Wall, who rule wildlings or fair, free folk, wear no crowns. And this guy lists the crowns. I'll just run through. Uh, crowns of the Targaryen dynasty. Crown of Aegon I. Uh, circle crown of Valerian steel with big square-cut rubies. That was worn by Aegon, Mygor. That was Mygor the Cruel. Aegon the second, he was the sixth king. Magor was the third. Aegon the Conqueror was the first. Daeron or Darian or something, the young dragon, he was the eighth. Then we have the crown of Anus. <laughs> I'm not A E N Y S. Anus, right? I'm not joking. Uh, Anus the first. A crown of gold, elaborate and larger than the crown of Aegon I. Sounds like an ace. It's got to be bigger, better. And that he was the second king, Anus. A. Nice. Nice. I think it's Anus. I think that's like an inside joke thing. Okay, and then we have the crown of Jai Hyrus. Hyrus. Crown of J. Harris. Something. J A E H A E R Y S. Reese. J A Reese. J A Reese, maybe. He had a simple gold band with seven different colored stones inset. He wore that. He was the conciliator. He was the fourth king. Then Viserys. 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 You know, uh, he was the fifth king. He wore it. It was also worn by uh, Rhaenyra. 
uh, during the Dance of the Dragons, his daughter. And we have the crown of Aegon III, a slender gold band. He wore it. He was, a seven, he was the dragon bane, seventh king. Viserys II, the tenth king, wore that crown. Aegon V, the unlikely, he was the 15th king. He wore that. And we have the crown of Baelor I, crown made of flowers and vines. He was the only one that wore that. He was the ninth king. Crown of Aegon IV, uh, a crown huge and heavy of red gold, each of its points a dragon head with gemstone eyes. He wore it. He was the unworthy, the 11th king. Then Dayron the second, the good, wore it. Ares the first, the thirteenth, and then Ares the second, the mad. So that was the crown the mad king won. Uh, then we have the Makar the first. He had a crown of crown of black iron and gold with sharp points. He was the fourth king. king. And then Jaharius the second, sixteenth king, wore that. Uh, we don't need to read that. We're gonna try to dodge any spoilers. Baratheons, uh, Joffrey's crown we've seen, Renly's crown we saw shortly. First crown of Circe Baratheon Lannister was a crown of gold. Second crown of Circe Baratheon Lannister was a crown of pale gold set with emeralds said to sparkle when the wearer turns the head. This crown is described as lighter than the first crown. Crown of uh, Rob Stark was an open circlet of hammered bronze incised with the runes of the first men. So Rob had one. And here's the crown of salt and lot rock, also referred to as the driftwood crown, denotes kingship over the Iron Isles, the ironborn in their territories. Associated with the crown of salt and rock is the sea stone chair denoting the same office. It is unclear whether this crown is the same one worn by the kings of the ironborn before the War of Conquest. Religious religious crowns, the crown of the high septon has a crown, the molten crown of Viserys, the golden crown. Yeah, so that's a little bit about crowns for y'all. All right, so Khaleesi spent a lot of time uh, dealing with these kings, the Spice King, and then she was talking about the Copper King and some other king. So I decided to dig into a little bit more about what is this marine, you know, what is this Karth or Quarth, and who are these jerks? And who do they think they are? Think they can push around our Khaleesi? Wrong, probably. So let's look up Karth, which is like the nicest city ever known, or something. Karth is an ancient ancient port located on the southern coast of Essos, situated on the Jade Gates, in a central location between the Summer Isles and the Jade Seas. Carth is a gateway of commerce and culture between the east and the west and the north and the south. Brimming with wealth, the city's architecture makes a grand display and is home to warlocks and merchant princes, nominally ruled by the pureborn. However, the powerful guilds of the Thirteen, the Tourmaline Brotherhood and the ancient guild of Spicers, all attempt to play a role in the governance of the city. It has been referred to as the Queen of Cities. It was never a part of the Valerian stronghold. Vast wealth. Having managed to successfully remain a crucial commerce port for centuries, Carth is absolutely brimming with wealth. Okay, we read about the rulings. rulers. 
Oh, defenses. Interesting. Karth is surrounded by thick walls of 30, 40, and 50 feet in height, respectively engraved with portraits of animals, war, and lovemaking. The triple walls of Karth is one of the nine wonders made by man reported in the book Wonders Made by Man. Outer wall. The outer wall is made from red sandstone 30 feet high, decorated with animals, snakes, kites, fish swimming, intermingled with woods of the red waste and striped zorses, Z-O-R-S-E-S, and monstrous elephants. The middle wall of gray granite 40 feet high is alive with scenes of war, the clash of swords and the shields and spear, arrows in flight and heroes in battle, babes being butchered, and the pyres of the dead. The innermost wall is made from black marble and 50 feet high, is carved with scenes of lovemaking. Three walls of Karth have been used for defense. Wait. Three walls of Karth have not been used for defense in centuries, but they still stand, stand representing the power of the city. Here's those dudes, the Undying of Karth. Karth is most famous for its warlocks, known as the Undying of Karth, who are feared and respected through the East. Like the Alchemist's Guild of the Seven Kingdoms, however, the warlock's power and prestige has waned over the years. Most warlocks have blue lips. They drink shade of the evening, which makes their lips turn blue. The warlock's stronghold and seat of power is the House of the Undying, which house the undying ones, the most mysterious and likely the most ancient and powerful of the warlocks. There is a saying in Karth concerning the warlocks. A warlock's house is built of bones and lies. And then the Thirteen are a prominent group of traitors within Karth. They fight for dominion over Karth with the Turmaline Brotherhood, the ancient guild of Spicers and the Pureborn. There are Thirteen members. Zaro, Zoan, Daxos, our buddy there, is a member of the Thirteen. The Thirteen own roughly a thousand ships. Daenerys, this is from the books, I think. Daenerys asked for ten ships from each of the Thirteen, which would total 130 ships. She was refused. So that's a little bit more about Karth. I don't know if it gives us any, any answers we're looking for, but, uh, you know. Well, we know a little bit more about these uh, 13, and uh, hopefully uh, Khaleesi gets these people in line. So there's a couple things in this episode about the wildlings. Uh, One was with Osha and Theon Greyjoy, and then the other one was with uh, Agrit and Jon Snow. And Horn Halfhand had a lot of things to say about the wildlings. And something about it was like, you know, you can catch a wildling, but don't fetch a wild. I don't know. Something was said at the beginning of so it's like, you can be wild. I can't remember already. I don't, you know, but there was something about it. And I said, uh, I don't know, I was thinking about wildlings. And I was like thinking about wild horses. And then I was thinking about the song Wild Horses, which um, might not be my favorite song. I don't know if I have a favorite song. I think it's a dangerous thing when you say, oh, this is my favorite song. But when I think about songs that have, like, a lot of meaning to me without being related to something, like, oh, that was a song that I listened to on this day, that songs actually have some substantive meaning to me, that's probably, that's a big one, Wild, wild Horses. And... um 
There's a bunch of different good versions of it, so I figured I'd dig into Wild Horses, talk about some stuff behind the song, and then talk about you know what, why, why do, what, what do I think, why, why do I care about it, <laughs> other than it's a great song. Uh, so here's what Wikipedia has to say about it: Wild Horses is a song by the Rolling Stones from their 1971 album Sticky Fingers, written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Rolling Stone put it at 334 of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Inspiration and recording. Uh, 1993 compilation Jump Back, Mick Jagger stated, everyone always thinks this was about Marianne. I think Marianne Faithful, but I don't think it was. That was all over by then. But it was definitely very inside this piece emotionally. Richard says, if there's a classic way of Mick and me working together, this is it. I had the riff in the chorus line. Mick got stuck in the verses. Mick got stuck in the verses. Just like Satisfaction, Wild Horses was the usual thing of not wanting to be on the road a million miles away from where you want it to be. Originally recorded over a three-day period at Muscle Shoals Sound Studio in Alabama, uh, December 2nd to the 4th, 1969, uh, while they were shooting the movie Gimme Shelter, it was not released for a year because they had some legal wranglings. It was released as a U.S.-only single in 1971. It reached 28 on the Billboard Hot 100. Huh, I didn't know it, it's featured prominently in the film's adaptation. I didn't know that. And Camp, Parks and Rec episode, studio versions. The following artists have recorded Wild Horses in a variety of ways. Prior to release on Sticky Fingers, Graham Parsons convinced Jagger and Richard to allow him to record Wild Horses with his band, the Flying Burrito Brothers. Graham Parsons and Keith Richards were roommates at the time in Nashville. The song was written by Mick and Keith in return for his having orchestrated the song um, Country Honk as it appeared on the album Let It Breathe. This is discussed in Keith Richards' autobiography. It is also a country rock legend. According to Keith's book, he expected to perform and record the song with Parsons, but Parsons' death in 1973 ended those plans. While the Rolling Stones had already laid the track to tape, the Burrito Brothers version was, original, was actually the first to be released appearing on their second album, Burrito Deluxe, in April 1970, one year before Sticky Fingers. And there's a lot of uh, different versions of the song, like they say in there, but I, I don't know, uh, the Burrito Brothers, the Graham Parsons version I find haunting. You might be, some of you might not know who Graham Parsons is. Uh, he's, uh, I don't know, he's I've, somebody I've always uh, thought a lot about, thought a lot of. And one of those people who uh, left left this world a little too early. So I figured I'd fill you in on Graham Parsons in case you didn't know. Uh, Cecil Ingram Connor III, uh, he was born November 5th, 1946. Known professionally as Graham Parsons, was an American singer, songwriter, guitarist, and pianist. Parsons is best known for his work written in the country music genre. He also, I don't know about that, um, he was also popularized what he called cosmic American music, a hybrid of country, rhythm and blues, soul, funk, and folk and rock. 
I agree with that, though. Uh, besides recording as a solo artist, he also worked in no- several notable bands, including the International Submarine Band, The Birds, and The Flying Burrito Brothers. His relatively short career is described by all music as enormously influential for country and rock. Uh, Parsons was born in Winter Haven. He went to Harvard for a time, founded the Submarine Band in 1966. After several months of delay, they debut, their debut, Safe at Home, was released in 68, but they had already disbanded. Parsons joined the Birds in 68, played a pivotal role in the making of their seminal Sweetheart of the Rodeo album. Then he left the group in late 68. Him and fellow bird Chris Hillman formed the Flying Burrito Brothers in 69, released their debut album, The Gilded Palace of Sin, that same year. The album was well-received but failed commercially. After a sloppy cross-country tour, they hastily recorded Burrito Deluxe. Parsons was fired from the band before it came out in 70. He signed with A&M Records but had several unproductive sessions. He canceled his solo debut in 71. Parsons moved to France where he lived with Keith Richards for a while. He returned to America he befriended Emmy Lou Harris, who assisted him on vocals for his first solo. Who assisted him on vocals for his first solo records, GP, released in '73, and it received enthusiastic, enthusiastic reviews. Failed to chart. His next album, Grievous Angel, was met with similar reception. Peaked at 195 on Billboard. Uh, recreational drug abuse. Severely deteriorated his health, and he passed away in 73 at the age of 26. So it's a, a sad little uh, story about someone who seemed like he had so much potential. Could have, Most people who was it unrealized genius or unfulfilled potential or whatever. I don't know. I've always, I don't know why I think about Grant Parsons so much. Uh, but uh, uh, there's been I don't know why I like it. I like his finding him have one of those haunting voices especially when he sings Wild Horses. Uh, but, um, and I'll try to put a couple of different versions up in the uh, Spotify playlist. But why this song? What does this song mean? Let me just read through the lyrics and then we can talk about it. Childhood living is easy to do. The things that you wanted, I bought them for you. Graceless lady, you know who I am. You know I can't let you slide through my hands. Wild horses couldn't drag me away. Wild, wild horses couldn't drag me away. I watched you suffer a dull, aching pain. Now you've decided to show me the same. No sweeping exits or offstage lines could make me feel better, could make me feel better or treat you unkind. Wild horses couldn't drag me away. Wild, wild horses couldn't drag me away. I know I've dreamed you a sin and a lie. I have my freedom, but I don't have much time. Faith has been broken. Tears must be cried. Let's do some living after we die. Wild horses couldn't drag me away. Wild, wild horses will ride them someday. Wild, wild horses couldn't drag me away. Wild, wild horses will ride them someday. And, uh, I mean, again, this is like a, this is, I guess, a sticky situation, not as a pun of sticky fingers, the album, but, you know, it's not my job to 
put meaning on someone else's song. This is more what does this song mean to me as opposed to what it, what, what is its actual meaning. Because it, to me, I mean, it's clear it's like this. It feels like the uh, – it, it's three things to me, actually. It's got to be uh, – I don't know. To me, it's just like this. And you can use all three interchangeably or maybe they're all the same thing. as like either the greatest – you know, unbelievable love lover, you know, saying to someone that's almost spurned them that, you know, no matter what they do, they're going to, you know, nothing's going to stop their, their, their passion for this person, but not in an obsessive or creepy way or the greatest, and it seems more of a father daughter thing to me, but I think it could be a father son or maybe a mother son thing, but it seems like a father daughter or in a greater sense some god uh whatever god or relationship you have i don't know i, I don't really something i'm searching for so maybe that has why it has but it's like this this father daughter uh saying you know like yeah you were a child childhood living was easy to do things that you wanted i got them for you i provided for you graceless lady you know who i am you know, I can't let you slide through my hands. But it's just so powerful to me to think about either a, a rejected lover or a rejected parent or even a, I mean, spurned God. Maybe it's even, even more powerful than a God that you've rejected saying, wild, wild horses couldn't drag me away like that. Even this beautiful, powerful, these animals cannot contain you know, my instinct, my desire to care for you and be with you. I mean, what more could you want from a lover or from a parent or from a God in that sense to be like, I have such a passion to be there to protect you that nothing can hold me back. And then just what a beautiful uh, Richardson and, and, uh, and Jagger to come up with that beautiful image of wild, wild horses couldn't drag me away. And then this, I have watched you suffer a dull, aching pain. I mean, it's like some serious empathy or compassion there. And now you've decided to show me the same, like by spurning me or hurting me or whatever you've done. But no sweeping exits or offstage lines could make me feel better or treat you unkind. Like, no matter how much you reject me, my caring for you, and that's where it becomes moves more into a parent or a, or a spiritual relationship for me, I guess, because it's like, you know, if you get rejected, you got to suck it up and take it. Um, you know, the relationship might be over. But with a parent, I mean, those relationships can end, but like someone that just has so much love for you that they will charge back, and every time you reject them, they might, I guess this is my imagining, like they might not be there to, uh, you know, you might not want anything to do with them, but they're going to still be there to take care of you. And they've been taking care of you the whole time and you haven't even known it. I mean, that, that gets into your religious, but it's like, a, I guess another thing that's sad about, um, for me, that makes me sad is like the, uh, separation of your sexuality and your spirituality. And again, I don't have a great understanding of any of that, but you know, maybe this is where this polytheism, why I'm attracted to it in this podcast, 
with the crone and the maiden, and I might joke about it, but it's like, how much, and maybe this is um, t- taboo, what is it, taboo, whatever the hell you say, you know, for me to say, but how much more would it mean if, like, you did have a God that was so passionately and and not only spiritually charged for you, but had that deeper animal passion that not even a band of wild horses could keep them from coming to you and caring for you and loving you and watching over you. Or, I mean, in a non-sexual way, a parent for a child. Um, and those aren't, I don't know. So like, that's why the song means so much to me. Every time I think about it, I connect to those feelings. And that's what good art does like that. It's like I never had, um, I've had some, you know, I, I don't, I've had, positive experiences, but nothing distilled like I've just described or like I feel I get through viscerally when I hear the song and the the poetry of the lyrics and the visuals. I don't know. I I mean, I guess I feel exposed here, so I'm trying to shut this down. But that's just what the song means to me. It's one of my songs that I love to hear. And actually, there's like a in every version, I mean, when you hear Graham Parsons sing it and you think he lost his young life uh, to, uh, to to drugs uh, and alcohol and, um, it's just, you know, it just has a little more meaning, I guess, to me, too. So that's it. Uh, let's uh, uh, yeah. Hello, hello, is this Tommen? Oh, Prince Tommen, and you may have heard of me referred to as the best friend a cat has ever had because I am best friends with the legendary, the highly well-known Sir Pounce, who is my best friend, the best friend a boy who's ever had, Sir Pounce. The cat, that is a cat among cats, and among men he is known as the greatest friend a human Could ever have, but he only has one friend. Right? You only have one friend, Sir Who only has one best friend. Number one friend, Tommen. And this is the tale of Tommen and Sir Pounce. So, hello everybody. I'm I'm Tommen again. I just, you know, that was my dramatic, dramaticude. So, you know, last week I told you about this little tale of how I saved Sir Pounce. And I don't want to... Uh, and me and Sir Pouncer, we, we've, uh, we've, uh, donned some robe. We've been busy, is what I'm saying. Oh, Sir Pounce is up on my lap. Hi, Sir Pounce. Sir Pounce wants to be close to make sure I do this. So, uh, I need to fill you in on some events of the past, uh, time period. Because, you know, how I said the scullery, which, uh, last week Sir Pounce got some milk. And then a scullery woman gave it to him, and then Joff made a hole to do. And then uh, the uh, the um, uh, hound came, and I changed the names, but I, I'm sure you figured it out. So I just come clean that it was Joff and the hound, and they tried to dunk Sir Pounce, and then I saved Sir Pounce by bursting my appendices. And my appendices is gone. They said they have burned it. Uh, because, uh, um, um, and mother said, you, you know, I'm surprised you had that. Good, you dick. You have a brain too, but that doesn't do anything. So hopefully you don't burst your brain. You, and then 
Joff said something about my men, my 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 pee-pee men thing, and I'm saying I. And so that was this week when I recovering as I was recovering from my appendices. They had me in bed, and they had a, the maester. Uh, he was supposed to be watching me over me, but he sent in his uh, his. Uh, he said it was his nephew. I don't believe they were related because the nephew hated the maester. Uh, and uh, but he he was his his ne is is like a maester minor many you know a mate junior maester I'd say, but then Sapounce came in my room as I was almost fully recovered and he said, uh, "Rapid round, rapid round, round," and I said, "No, Sapounce," and it ended up that uh. What it happened, me and Sir Pounce are called, were called into duty, and not a duty, a duty as one boy and his best friend to investigate, for the scullery maid had vanished from her workplace after this giving Sir Pounce the milk and Joff saying, and everyone, and, and I said, uh, you know, uh, mother said, what happened with your appendices? And I said, I was... They try, you know, I told her, and she said, well, you and that cat, we should just get rid of that cat. And then, uh, so, so the, uh, but I remember father telling me that this one woman that worked in the kitchen, the scullery maid, I think her name was Anna, Anna, he said she, he had left a, a, a ma magical seed with her where he had to grow, father said. Right before, when he was, when, right before father left, he said, Tom, and promise me one thing. You, there's a seed I've given to, uh, you know, that one beautiful, lovely, uh, well, there's a lot, he said, the, the one with green eyes and the uh, lovely smile who loves your cat. And I said, oh, I know, she, she, she's not his best friend, though, Papa. I'm Sir best friend. He's, ah, yes, Tom, and you and the cat. And so he said he left her with a magical seed to grow up somehow. And I said, oh, it was a magical seed, Father. What, why did you not give it to me? And then he laughed and laughed, and then he coughed up some blood. And they took me away, and I cried. But he said, I remember him saying, watch over her. And now she's gone and missing. And even more incredible than that is that uh, Joff said that this one uh, boy works down in the stables has done something he said he he took her off to the woods to marry her and he, he he sold her away or something i don't know i get confused about these things and i find it frightening but uh he said uh so sir pounce said sir pounce, sir pounce was telling me all this now you might say how do you know well, I, you know, I said, uh, you know, I asked the Meister's boy, the assistant Meister. I said, you heard about this? He said, oh, yeah, that, uh, you know, he did it. That boy, the stable boy, they got him in the dungeons, 100% guilty. Your brother said, you know, yeah, you know, leave him to rot like uh, dishes on the vine or some such thing. And so Pounce me, no, 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 it's uh, Joffrey, Joffrey. And so we're, we're convinced, my brother Joff. Now, we need it's not about, you know, she's just a servant. We you know, it's the magical seed I need to find for Father told me to protect it. What did he say? Protect her and the seed, for they are one, Tommen. 
And I said, I don't know. It's just a seed, I think, Father. I, I, but so the bounce was agreeing with me and saying, well, 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 so pray. And so we are convinced that this boy, this stable boy who is in, in the dungeons is not guilty. And so Sir Pounce and I have been cracking in, and we went in and we talked to this boy. He's a very nice boy. Very. He says, "Oh, hi, you're you're the you know you're the king." And I said, "Oh no, oh, oh no no no, I'm just Prince Tommen. You know, just Tommen. To you know, Prince Tommen. Yeah, better call me Prince Tommen." And he said, "Oh, I'm sorry, my grace." And I said, "Oh no 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 no, no. your grace. I'm your grace." And he said, "Oh yes, your grace." And he, he said, who's this cat? And I said, it's Sir Pounce, my best friend. And he has, believe it or not, a rat for a best friend, which Sir Pounce, don't tell him because he's locked in the dungeon, but Sir Pounce ate his rat a couple of days ago, I think, because he said he had a white spot on its butt. And his rat was named Gary, and he was a nice rat. The boy said that he was the best friend a boy's ever had, and the best friend a rat's ever had is him. And so we talked, and I liked this, and I said, you couldn't have, what did you do? You sold her to, you sold the poor milkmaid to a governor, which he said, oh, no, 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 I did not. We were just friends, and we liked to hold hands, and uh, she was, she was, you know, talked about your father, Tom, and she said, your father's the best at uh, things, uh, you know, and, and I said, what things? And she said, kitchen type, things in the kitchen, they would do things in the kitchen. Oh, seed planting. And he said, exactly, that's the way to say it, my grace. Thank you. And I said, well, thank you for what? He said, well, saving me the embarrassment. And I, why would you be embarrassed? And he, I see, he said, uh, well, they're just talking about your father planting me. The seed planting. And with, with uh, you know, since he, and, and, and then Sir Pounds said, right, right, right. And I said, okay, Sir Pounce. And I said, so where were you? Where have you been? He said, in the stables. And then I think I went to him down to, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, check on some uh, some shoe, shoe you know, uh, horseshoes that was supposed to be done. And I said, well, okay, well, she she, uh, she said they sold her to a covenant, which is she is gone uh, between uh, between um, the uh, uh uh, second meal and the third meal of the day, and they, that's when she was taken from her job because she was on that. That's when she has a break, and they said, you know, the people have heard you, you, you wanted to. He said, well, no, no, Tom, and not me. I did not. And I said, well, who do you have that could say you were at the? Did you talk to anyone when you were at the uh, iron place? The uh, what do they call it? He said, a smith. And I said, maybe, uh, but I didn't I didn't pick anything up. I just was looking, and I forgot that I was at the, you know, I was just there to uh, pass some time. And I said, well, you didn't pick up any uh, horseshoes. No, 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 because they weren't ready. And, I, I, and, I, and, and then I was supposed to go because I'm uh, practicing to be a squire with uh, uh, one of, the, one of these uh, minor lords. Sir Roron, Sir Roron, eh? I've, I've, heard, I've heard of him. Mother says he's the lowest of the low lords, I believe. Oh, well, that's uh, that's nice. He said to me, "Your Grace, uh, I guess I'd be the lowest of the low school." And I said, "Well, does he remember, uh, um, 
Would he remember you working with you that day? And they said, no, he was drunk. So maybe not. So we went and met with him. He said, your father's the best. I loved your father. Like he loved that scullery maid and that squire and that go good square. And I said, well, weren't you with the squire that day? And he said, ah, ah. And I said, you're just like my father, you silly goose, with your wine drinking, your teeth are red. And he said, ah, right. And then Sir Pounce clawed his uh, face uh, very hard, and they screamed and ran away. And then I screamed and ran away. And so we didn't find anything out there. And then I went to the, I said, we went to the, and Mother said, what are you doing, Tom? And you can't be out in a mountain. And I said, why? She said, well, you'll be at W. And she said, well, no one knows who you are. No, never mind. And so we went to the uh, Iron Man, what is that called, the uh, Smithy. And I said, uh, hello. And then Smith said, what are you here for, some cat shoes? <laughs> and I said, oh, do you have cat shoes? And he said, it was a joke. And I said, well, do, do, do you make cat shoes? And he said, no. And I said, well, would you? He said, well, I would make them from iron. And I said, oh, uh, why not? He said, well, he said, what are you, what are you here for, boy? And I said, a prince. Prince Tommen's the name. And investigating the scullery thing is my game. Now, would you, you remember that whore, that boy? He worked for the lower lord, and he was in here one day, and he said, oh, no, 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 I never heard of him. Never heard of him. I don't pay much attention. I've got heat and fire and sweat. And it was looking not looking good, and Jaffa said, this boy is going to pay for selling the scullery made to the coven of witches. And I lied in my bed, and I out, and I said, oh, no, this is too bad. Uh, you ate his rat, too, so he'd be, maybe he'll see his rat. He'll be happy. And Sapout said, no, no, no. You know, he Sapout said, Joff did it, and we have to figure it out. And I said, well, I don't know if we can't prove that this boy was not... Uh, where he said he was, what are we to do? What are we? How can we possibly catch Joff? And they, I said, maybe we could get the hound. We could never get the hound to talk, or any of the king's guard. And they, you know, so what are we going to do, Sir Pounce? And Sir Pounce said, row, row. and I said, uh, and then suddenly under my door slipped a note, written in pe- ink and in ink, and it said, "Dearest Tommen." And Sir Pounce, sweet Sir Pounce, I am so jealous of the friendship you have, and you, I know you are searching out who sold the girl to the witches and think it is not the boy who works in the stables, and I want to let you know a deep secret I have, and that I have learned. Now you think I, I, I read pretty good, the maester, he does get me to read good, instead of reading more. You know, I would love to disclose to you this secret of who and where the young woman is, for she is safe in the seed, and, and all I want you to know is in the clearest of clear, you are a big, puffy-faced baby boy, Joff. I, you know, said, oh, boy. And so that was the uh, that that was that we said we I met with the boy guy said I'm working on it me and Pounce, and he said well what about uh, you know talking to my family and I said well next time I'm a bit tired and I, 
You don't have my fourth meal. I know you regulars only have two meals. I have like four or five meals, so it's time for my fourth and fifth meal. So good luck. Stay here. I'll be back next week with Sir Pounce, and we'll figure this out. We'll find out the whodunit of whodunits uh, next time on The Best Friend. A cat's ever had the best friend voice. I ever had the best friend uh, rat, formerly the boy and rat were friends. Best, anyway, that's Tom and, and Sir Pounce, and we're out. Good night. It's time for my prayers. Hey, guys, it's me. Uh, prayer in Crone, sweet, sweet Crone, Miller, Smith, Barky, everybody. Well, let's, uh, Jester, sorry, Jester. I uh, just called, you know, just, uh, coming in with a report from, uh, down here in Westeros. Uh, believe in or not, God's, you know, I don't know if, I don't know if up there you guys do the, uh, palm to the forehead thing. Especially you, Crone, because you're supposed to be all-knowing or, you know, know the future stuff. But uh, I did one of those because I, I was trying to, believe it or not, God, there's no bad, uh, bad news this week. Because, like, last week I was telling you I was working at the inns and, um, you know, people were throwing stuff at me. I was doing the uh, open uh, non-mic night where you... uh go and sit and um then people would throw their vegetables at me and boo and, and stuff would splat and they and and um i was pretty popular on those nights like i said more and more people were showing up or they were i was traveling down to town word would get there out of me and then i was met, met by this guy named cereal uh not cereal pharrell like cereal and he's like a storyteller. He tells like uh, mysteries, uh, and every night he goes for like a, you know he tells them, and he leaves a cliffhanger, and then the next night everybody comes back. But the problem he had this reputation because his stories were so good that he would get the audience all wound up, and obviously he wanted the innkeeper to pay him to come back the next night. He could get more money. But the other side of it was the audience wasn't used to this kind of, um, uh, what do you call it, like, uh, I don't know, Charles Dickens. Oh, you guys don't know who Charles Dickens is either. But, uh, you know, a story that starts one night and then picks up the next night. The serial guy was in charge of that. And um, he uh, so he was like, you know, I think I could use you. To uh, because you know there'd be riots after they'd be and people are just like I can't I can't go to bed without knowing what happens to the story, so he's like What do you think we work together? I said uh, um, I don't know I don't know what you're talking about how I could be any use to anybody other than the gods. Do you believe in the crone? And he said, Listen, buddy, I'm not here to be you know. He said I got this idea. He goes, I'll get all the audience bent out of shape. You come in. And relieve them of the tension. And uh, he goes, do you get my drift now? I said, okay, wait a second. I think I do not get it. And he said, okay, let's do it. So we go to this town. Um, I can't remember what it was called. Um, uh, America Town, I think they called it maybe. And he goes and he tells this story. And I was even like, holy macaroni. This is, what is, how, what's this next who who done it? It was a who done it. I was like, who done it? 
And then he's like, this is the person they think did it. And everyone, I mean, everyone. And then he goes, all right, kid. He he leaves it. I'm like, who done it? And he's like, okay, well, make sure you come back next tomorrow night to hear the next part of my tale. And I was like, what? and he's like, don't, at first he's like, this is when you go on. And God's, I don't know how I didn't realize that uh, what I was already doing here in the earthly world, that the West, so I get out there and then I say, hey, everybody, I'm Aristotle Stevens and uh, I'm here. And then people start throwing stuff at me. And then Cereal's like, you know, get, get it, you know, keep it up, keep it up, kid. And then they're angry, but then they're still like charged. And he's like, see if you, and then I was like, holy, this is just like the podcast live kind of ish. Except he had the good, like his has an exciting part. So after, if he was like an exciting podcast, um, mine would be the one after it to calm down. So the people would throw stuff. And then I was like, man, I could still do this uh, Aristotle Stevens routine. So I was like, all right, everybody, now that you've thrown cabbages and, and um, I'm, you know, my eyes swelling, but I, you know, I have a little tale of my own that I'm going to tell every night. And it's called The Tales of the Tea with Tillerman. And then somebody's like, what's a Tillerman? And I said, oh, it's a guy that runs the tiller. And then someone said, well, what's a tiller? And I said, did I say this was a Q&A? And then some, what's a Q&A? And I said, questions and answers. And then someone said, what's a tiller? I said, it's the thing at the back of a boat that you move the boat with. What's a, why would you have tea with a tillerman? I said, well, just relax and I'll explain it to you. And then I said, oh, yeah, remember, I go, this first part of the story is like, uh, where do the children play? Because I was having tea with this tillerman. Now, maybe, may, you know, I know I was never sure if this Tillerman was from the underworld or which God he represented. But he says to me, man, I think it's fine, you know, building Jimbo, Jimbo plot, plate, plates like they have it in. It's like, Jim, you know, ones that are humongoid. And then he's like, you know, what do you think about a ride on a cosmic train? And then someone raised, I said, like a red comet, riding a red comet. And the, uh, he said, uh, he said, like, switch on summer, like swan, swan machines, like a mill of run by swans. And you could get it, what you want from the miller and the smith, if you want anything. And Tillerman's man, I've come a long way. And I said, I was in the boat with you the whole time. He said, yeah, we've come a long way. And he said, what do you, what do you think the children play in this new land? And he said, the children gather around you, Tillerman, and I to learn about uh, the meaning of life and science and art and narrative uh, and, uh, you know, to explore why. So can you lay some of that on us, Tillerman, sweet, sweet Tillerman, tonight and the rest of the nights after Serio, Serio, not Pharrell, but Serio, just say the word, oh, you know, whether that wouldn't be Aristotle Stevens is my buddy, uh, the uh, um, Collins of Phil's. Uh, Tillerman said to me, he said, you know, you roll on roads over fresh green grass, 
when the long summer comes, you know, and lights the way, you know, people eat well and, and, you know, yeah, Lori Lords pumping, uh, 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 red, redhead love machines. And you take them along, you make them tough. They just go on and on. It seems you just can't get off with off the red-headed uh, lorry machine. And we came a long way on that green grass and that road. We're changing. We changed our clothes day to day. And like you people that never change your clothes. And, but where do the ch- children play? I don't know. And if, you know, there's a crack in the sky with a red comet or lightning from an angry crone, scrapers, you know, raining on us. Uh, build it. Don't, don't, don't build the rocks too high, for the castle will fall if the dragons come. And uh, some of the people would be be honest with you, guys. The people were like either staring. Some people were nodding off. It was warm, and cereal, cereal was just clapping silently for me. And the innkeeper was like, uh, you know, wiping his brow, getting his money, and. Um, it was pretty terrible if I was Cat Stevens or Aristotle because I barely had any Aristotelian stuff in there. Um, so that's where we're at, guys. Is uh, I don't even know if you were away. Crone, 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 crone. I guess crone's asleep, or I think. Does anybody got a mirror? Uh, Jester, you got a mirror? Hold on, let me try again. Crone. Crone. Yeah, Crone's, uh, I don't want to put my hand inside her shirt to see if she's breathing. Oh, boy, I'm going to do it, though. Oh, she, oh, no, my hand's cold. I can't. Sorry, gods. Um, I put my forearm under her nose. I'm pretty sure she's breathing. Uh, oh, yeah, wait. I'm a, oh, God, yeah, that's some awful sound. Sounds like she's, uh. She might have a deviated septum. Can gods have deviated septums? Anyway, guys, I better let the crone sleep. Um, and uh, thanks for listening. And that's it, plan. Uh, bait Aristotle and Cat uh, Stevens is underway. I'm, you know, helping out this guy and boring people, which I was, I guess, born to do in two worlds and not just one. And luckily... Only in one world, the Westeros world, do I get pelted with cabbage and rotten. Um, you should have seen there, this guy, he must have like, um, his asparagus, it was like the tips were rotten, but then the sh- shafts were hard, and he was able to wing them at me like, um, I don't even know what to describe it as, like a ninja star nunchucka combo with an exploding head because they would hit me and then the um, asparagus head would rottenly explode and then it was also sting from the uh, um, tree woody part. So that's it, God's crone, crone, sweet, sweet crone. So sleep sleep apnea or something. I don't know what she's got. Um, God, it sounds like an elephant with some sort of digestive issues. Um, Smith Miller Barkey, don't tell her I said that, Jester. Thank you. And I'll be in touch uh, soon. Thank you.